podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. For Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Martin Lee, and this is the Autosport Podcast. Aston Martin's recent announcement that it's entering the World Endurance Championship and IMSA Sports Car Racing Championship from 2025 is excellent news. The rebirth of the Valkyrie project and a version of that which will hit the track. We'll get into some of the nuance of that. Uh, What it means, though, is that the 1959 Le Mans winning mark is back at Le Mans for a long overdue crack at the overall glory. I'm Martin Lee, and to talk about what this means, put it in context, really, sort of a week or so after the initial announcement, are our sports car guru, Gary Watkins, and our chief editor of Autosport, Kevin Turner. Chaps, thanks for joining us for a quick chat about this on the podcast today. Gary, I'll come to you first. Why was this such big news when we uh, announced it as breaking news recently? Aston Martin is a big brand. It's a a famous mark. And for me, it sort of completes the set in uh, this golden age of sports car racing that we keep banging on about. We have Porsche, we have Ferrari, Lamborghini coming and now we're going to have Aston Martin. So that's all, all, is that all the great sports car brands that are out there? And then on top of that, I have what, what I call uh, motorsport brands, great motorsport brands like BMW coming next year to WEC, already racing this year uh, in IMSA. And then, yeah, we have Toyota. Uh, we could have Honda, of course, who are racing in IMSA. As the Acura brand, we don't, we can't buy Acuras over here in Europe, so they can't race unless it became a Honda. So we're, it's all sort of fingers crossed uh, there for us. So yeah, it's 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 full house, isn't it? It is pretty much the dream set of manufacturers that you would have wanted. You know, Gary's been writing and we've been following, obviously, the whole LMDH, LMH hypercar development coming together of WEC and IMSA over the last two or three years. Uh, and we've been talking, as Gary says, about this golden era, hoping that it would be. And, and it, it kind of is becoming that, isn't it? Yeah, this year has been a pretty good start with the manufacturers coming in to join, you know, to join Toyota, obviously already there and stayed through the, the LMP1 era. Um, and pretty much all the, yeah, all the big names that you'd, you'd want. We haven't even mentioned Alpine are coming as well. It's obviously that's not a big sports car name in the same way, but it's got Le Mans heritage as well. So a lot of reasons to be cheerful. I guess if you've been nitpicky, you might say, well, it'd be nice to have a Jaguar on the grid as well, really. But actually, uh, for me, Aston Martin is kind of a more romantic Le Mans name, even than, than than Jaguar, even though it's only got the one win. Aston Martin's kind of like the Ferrari of Britain for me. It's kind of how I how I feel about it, really. Um, uh, and it's got this kind of great, as we'll get into a bit later. It's kind of almost been a heroic failure most of the time. Uh, in it's uh, certainly in terms of overall Le Mans glory, it's much more successful in the lower classes. And that's why it is even bigger news, isn't it? Because of this sort of heroic failure since 59. And that's really what we're going to talk about today, isn't it? Some of those projects, maybe all of those projects. And there have been loads of them that have sort of flattered to deceive in a way, haven't they? And let's remember that that could apply to before 1959 as well. You know, it took David Brown a decade to win the 24 hours. Uh, you know, they had some promising starts in the early 50s with the DB2, uh, sort of a genuine, I kind of almost think it was an early GT car, really. Uh, and then they got into what we call now sports prototypes or sports cars. And they were usually uh, underpowered compared to the rivals. And it took them a long time to get that. Uh, get that victory and then yeah it's taken them even longer to uh, try and crack the second 
So what is this meaning in the context of that since 1959, how they have returned and, and what guises they came back in rather than a sort of full flamethrower, all guns blazing, you know, factory team? How's that? How have they tried to come back over the years? Well, the starting point probably is best uh, discussed by Kev because he's the expert on what, what we call the project cars, sort of in, in the e- immediate aftermath of 1959 and Aston's withdrawal from uh, factory sports car racing and their brief dalliance with Formula One. So I'm going to hand over to Kev here. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, they, after 59, obviously, it didn't just win Le Mans, they won the, you know, the, the Sports Car World Championship. As, uh, with a maximum well, and, score, and, and, we should never we, with a, we with should a never forget score, that. Which was all, almost entirely due to Sterling Moss, who even had to persuade David Brown to let him take a DBR1 to the Nürburgring, which is a different different story altogether. But yeah, it didn't take them too long to then actually decide maybe it would be a good idea to have a bit more of a presence in GT and sports car racing again. Um, and there are there were three project uh, models uh, across four chassis. Now, Project 212 uh, was... Uh, 1962 car which was actually a prototype or experimental car four liter engine uh allegedly a bit based on db4 gt but i think that 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 was very loosely loosely the case but it was very quick it actually did lead the race briefly um uh but it 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 failed in the end it had piston failure due to an oil pipe but it was the only one you know it was this one aston martin uh, against an absolute phalanx of uh, Ferraris. It's a similar story to Maserati in the same era, really, just very shoestring, you know, a couple of quick cars, but they were never likely to outlast all the Ferraris. Was, would you call it half-hearted, really, that, that, the project projects, if you like, the, the three different cars it, from 62 to 64? That's probably fair. And if you look at John Wyre, who, of course, masterminded the, the win in 59 and went on to, of course, famously win Le Mans with a GT40 in his own Golf Mirage. Yeah, he said that actually in 63, so Project 214, which was a much closer to being a genuine GT car, uh, and 215, which was another prototype again, although they looked very similar. Um, he thought that both cars, in theory, were capable of winning of winning the race. Um, the two one fours were caught out because they had to use cast pistons instead of forged pistons because they, you know, timing, budget, etc., not really done properly. So they kind of went in with a with a problem. The two one five one is even more crazy because the one weak link on the DBR one was the transaxle. Kind of ironically, Aston Martin, given David Brown's background in gearboxes, uh, you know that that was often the weakness with Aston Martins was their gearbox. And the 215 had a had a bigger engine, four-litre engine, uh, more power, more torque than the DBR1 uh, of a few years before, but they stuck the same transaxle in it. And lo and behold, that's what failed at Le Mans in 1963. It had proved its pace. You know, it's it's officially, I believe, credited as the first car to top 300 kilometres per hour down the mole side at Le Mans. Whether it's actually the first car to do that is uh, open to debate, I think. But, you know, that gives you an idea as to how rapid it was. You know, these were quick cars, but they were, I think Gary's point, you know, they were half-baked. It's entirely fair in that they didn't have enough time and development on them, and there simply weren't enough of them. When you're up against multiple different versions of Ferraris, both in sports prototypes and GT classes, um, remember in those days, you know, cars were far less reliable. You know, you needed weight of numbers, uh, and, 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 and Ferrari had that both in terms of, you know, the, the number of models and the number of entries. If we're using the term half-hearted, we could use it again for 1967 and John Surtees' uh, 
campaign with two um, load of T70s, T70s with factory Aston Martins in the back. And what we shouldn't forget is that Team 30s was an entity, a racing team, long before it came into uh, Formula One. Of course, the year before in 66, 30s with his own car, another Lola T70, an open car, had uh, had won the inaugural Can-Am Championship. So again, that was something that was, it was it was just a bit half-baked. The cars were slow on, on the straights and uh, they didn't last very, lap, very long. I think uh, 30s managed two laps, didn't he? Yeah, I mean that again. That's another that's because that's that's the that was with the Tadek Merrick designed V8 engine, which had been in the works so long. Project Two One Five Aston Martin was actually designed to take that V8 in 1963. Now, bearing <laughs> and it was nowhere near ready, so they had to put the four liter straight six in it. And the engine still wasn't really ready by 1967. Four years later, it still really wasn't raceworthy. Now, eventually, of course, that became one of the great. Aston engines and was in lots of and cars. went back to Le Mans uh, certainly as a road car <laughs> and when and went back years to later I think it's probably fair to say that as Gary will get to in a minute it was more successful as a road car engine than it was as a racing unit but yeah so so the sixties really there was probably lots of potential in all those cars because the, the T seventy I think is another great sports car that never was because it didn't have the right. Yeah, just things didn't come together, didn't have the right teams running at the right times. So the Lola T70 is a, is kind of a great missed opportunity in international sports car racing, which kind of is, is apt given how Aston Martin got them with the project cars early in the decade. So as we go into the 1980s then, which is a little more recent history and Group C, how did Aston go about their racing? And then, of course other names as the decade as the years go on as as we get into Jaguar get into Bentley uh, as the decades go on how did Aston not achieve the success that they would have looked over at their competitors thinking well we'd like some of that well what we shouldn't forget that is that during the 70s it was a very uh, dire period for Aston you know there was there were some years they were just selling really a handful of cars uh, but talking of the 70s there was one interesting project uh, it was it's a car that's called the Ram one uh, by Rob, it was masterminded by Robin Hamilton and it was basically he developed his club racing car a car that he'd even done, used for hill climbs and sprints and he gradually developed it into a, a Le Mans car you know it it wasn't a success in any way uh, but Robin Hamilton then became part of a new group called Nimrod Racing Automobiles uh, that first went to Le Mans in 1982. And the significance of that is that the chairman of Aston at the time, Victor Gauntlet, was one of the partners in it. So we can... You know, we can say this was a, a factory, quasi-factory, semi-factory. It was a factory-ish programme. Now... Was it a success? No, it wasn't. But it did finish seventh on debut. Actually, a, a car that it sold to a customer, uh, a guy called Viscount Down, who was also uh, a shareholder in Aston and I'm told president or chairman of the Aston Martin Owners Club at the time. And they finished seventh, which, you know, that was the first year of Group C. Not a bad effort. And they should have actually been fourth. Uh, but for a late engine problem. And there's a wonderful BBC sort of uh, um, documentary made about uh, Le Mans that year where, they, uh, where they're where they actually looking at the team 
trying to sort the the problem in the pits and they're trying to put the spark plug leads back on and they can't remember the firing order of the uh, of the uh, of the engine and that loses them a few more a few more um seconds or minutes and i think we can say it was a worthy program but was it going to beat porsche's new 956 you know uh no it wasn't again it it's sort of they're just falling short you know it wasn't like the project cars it was wasn't that sort of you know big buck uh factory program so what is this sort of 20 something 25 years after their last success so reasonably recent history perhaps people still working there that might have been around you know uh when they were last winning well, so there is a significance to the nimrod project that was covered 82 83 and 84 programs that ray malloch was very involved in it and he he was responsible for evolving the car which was which was basically the starting point of the car was a lola uh, it was that the design was actually commissioned from lola and it did have elements of the t70 in it you know all 15 years after john 30's campaign i'm told it used the t70 windscreen for example uh but ray malloch was involved in that uh and developed the car you know they found 10 seconds between years one and two but unfortunately it didn't it didn't you know in the arena that it was in it didn't um it didn't even repeat its previous successes and then there was a big accident in um in in the final year in 84 it, it, in which unfortunately a marshal was killed both cars were sort of uh more or less destroyed and and that was sort of the end of the project uh but the significance of that is that ray malloc was then involved in the next project we're going to talk at talk about at the other end of the 80s in 1989 that was you know a proper factory campaign and that was uh a car called the amr1 uh it was the pro the sort of group behind it was called proteus engineering Ecuria Cost that had won uh le mans with jaguar twice in the 50s was involved uh the owners of aston martin were involved um and it so we can say it was a it was a proper works project uh unfortunately it fell it fell over um well, I, fe- I suppose we should, what we should first say is that in, in season one, the car didn't really work at Le Mans. It was slow on the straight, it had a porpoising problem, that, and it, the cars had sort of quite a few reliability issues. But, you know, this was, for me, the first serious attempt by Aston to win Le Mans since 1959. Unfortunately, it was cut down... Uh, Back in 87, shortly after this program had been set in place, uh, Ford had taken a a significant shareholding, 75% in Aston Martin. Now, in 1989, they started buying into Jaguar as well, Ford did. And by the beginning of 1990, they took control of Jaguar. Now, what were Jaguar doing in sports car racing? Well, they were winning at Le Mans. uh, And it was decided somewhere... uh, up in uh, the on the fifth floor at Ford headquarters, that they didn't need two of their brands going um, to Le Mans and chasing big victories in sports car racing, which is a shame because that project, you know, I think it was serious and it, and, and there was promise. They had a new car 
uh, in the works, well, more than in the works for 1990. And more than that, they'd recruited Tony Southgate, who was Jag- Jaguar's designer, had designed the uh, 88 winner, and he was going to do a new three and a half litre car for them and now I say three and a half litre and those were the new rules that were coming in being sort of slowly phased in to what was then known as the World Sports Prototype Championship and that and that and those were the rules that created the Peugeot 905 and the uh, Jaguar XJR14 so I think that was again a lot of promise but yeah it, it, it was never delivered upon it's fairly typical, isn't it? I think that a lot of Aston Martin's history, we have to say they have been on a financial precipice, which always makes it difficult to do motorsport properly. Uh, and then the one time when it did look quite promising, it, it, was, a back, it was a background uh, development that changed it, but it wasn't a lack of money as such as the, the money and resources being, uh, well, being select. And you have to say that at that time, Jaguar did make sense as the logical choice uh, and also, you know, you don't want to upset Tom Walkinshaw. I would have thought he'd probably be he'd probably be a worse man to upset than someone like Ray Malik. But uh, well, maybe not. I don't know. But uh, Tom had a bit of reputation. It did make sense. Jackie had won won championships and Le Mans already. Uh, but it was it was a shame uh, that 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 didn't really come to fruition. Should we move on to well, there was a fallow period in the 1990s, as you say, and then uh, at the projects in the in the 2000s. Well, we're really uh, we're Gary. talking a 20 year absence. Uh, I'm not going to uh, mention the uh, 1995 uh, DB7 that failed to pre-qualify. That was a French project, not a works project at all. Uh, so we're not going to mention that. We now have to scroll forward to the end of the 2000s. And think of the the wonderful looking golf liveried Lola Aston Martin coupes. Well, that's what I call them. The type number is actually a B0960, but Aston actually called the car the DBR1-2, uh, obviously to sort of uh, hark back to the 59 Le Mans winner. Well, that that was a really interesting project undertaken by Aston Martin Racing, which is, which is we all know, ProDrive, which would begin begun being building GT cars for Aston, GT racing cars for Aston uh, in the middle of that decade. Now, they'd come in in 2008 with a car run under the Chiru's banner, but it was actually run by ProDrive, and it had the V12, the big V12 from the DBR9 um, GT1 car. Now, the ACO at that time, the, the governing body of Le Mans, had decided to uh, give manufacturers running gt1 engines a bit of a performance break so they came in to take advantage of that sort of the the first program with Cherus was a bit of a lead-in and then in year two uh pro drive amr went to town they significantly reworked the lola with their own bodywork their own uh get well they changed the gearbox and it created what is it at I think you'd agree, Kev, a beautiful looking car. And of course, it's it's nicely set off by by the golf colours. Uh, and that car was a car that could nip at the heels of the uh, of the turbo diesels of the time, the Audis and the It Burgers. sounded a lot better than well, them as well. Absolutely, absolutely. It sounded gorgeous, didn't it? You know, and, and, and that's why we're looking forward to seeing the Valkyrie back, uh, the Valkyrie racing, Aston Martin back with the Valkyrie, sorry, and a V12 engine that is going to sound 10 times better than anything else on the grid. Sorry, everyone else, but that's the truth. 
Uh, so they came in this car and it, it really did, you know, it, it, it was, it was a sort of, you know, it, they punched above their weight. They nipped at the heels of the turbo diesels. They finished fourth in the first year in 09, should have been fourth again, uh, were fourth with, uh, with, on 23 hours in 2010, but then the the car had an engine problem, which is actually the result of one of the drivers spinning and overheating while he was extricating himself from the gravel. And that, for me, that was a very worthy project. And you you saw those cars race, didn't you, Kevin? They were just yeah, just lovely. Oh yeah, they 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 were they were fantastic. You know, I always like closed sports prototypes as well. And as you say, they were the. I mean, they won the 2009 LMS title, of course, yes. as well, didn't they? Le Mans Series title in the absence. Of of the turbo diesels were kind of underlining the fact that they were the they were the top petrol yeah, sports prototype of the year. Best, if you best like. of the rest, you know, absolutely. So, and can you help me understand the context of their return, say in the the, the, the noughties, versus their previous attempts to return? Because they have been present since then. They've been building since then, rather than right here's a project we're coming back, you know, and then it ultimately being a bit of a letdown. How does that compare to their previous efforts? Well, what we shouldn't forget is that, as, as I just mentioned, is that ProDrive in 2004 forged a relationship with Aston Martin. Uh, David Richards, the boss of and founder of ProDrive, had been instrumental in, the, in putting together the group that had taken over Aston Martin from Ford. Uh, that, that sort of grew into a, a wider a, a arrangement whereby um, ProDrive built... Uh, raced, serviced um, a line of successful um, GT racing cars. So we think we mentioned the DBR9, which won uh, the GT1 class at Le Mans in 2008 and 2009, once in British Racing Green, once in Golf Colours. So happy days, best of both worlds there. Uh, and then, of course, then moving into the GTE era, uh, it's twice won its class at Le Mans in GTE Pro and three times in uh, GTE Am, you know, and that's not to forget about the hundreds of racing cars that they've pumped out over the years to GT1, uh, GT2, GTE, GT3, GT4, you know, it's it's customer racing uh, and a very successful successful project so we are getting excited ah oh, aston back aston back but you know aston hasn't been away uh since for 20 for 20 years a bit like a bit like porsche if you think you know porsche won Le, won Le Mans in 98 didn't come back until 2014 to try and win overall but it was never away there are always masses of porsches in the gt ranks uh, on the on the grid to, to underline, I think the importance of that of that year. I think it was 07 and 08 as well with the GT ones. You're right. Uh, you're right. My, sorry. Yeah, yeah. My dad was he's he's a big Aston Martin fan. That was his uh, pilgrimage to Le Mans was 2007. So he picked a good year. But no, I, I did a list of of the, the best Aston Martin racing cars or great Aston Martin racing cars a few years ago, and I put the DBR9 second in that because of its uh, well, partly it was cool, partly because it won its class at Le Mans, the epic fights with the Corvette, but also because of its significance. So it's kind of the start point for pretty much everything that Aston Martin has done in racing mm. in subsequent, what, we're almost 20 years on. Um, very successful and important racing car. And as Gary said, you know, it gave its engine to the to the Lola Aston prototype as well. So it's just uh, it's just a shame that the end of that line the first time around came with uh, 
came with a, a, a different uh, a different machine with a very different engine, which we probably should uh, we probably should cover off from two thousand and eleven. Well, buoyed by the success with the DBR one two or what I'm going to call it the Lola Aston Martin Coupe, uh, AMR ProDrive decided to do basically a clean sheet of paper design. And it was called the AMR1. Now, the 1989 Group C car AMR1 was AMR1 numeral. This was AMR1 word. So, uh, yeah, so that's... And it could be described in well, one word. Yes, and, and it's not a very long word, is it? But uh, but I, actually, that's unfair. You know, Aston committed late. They didn't have the resources of Peugeot and... Um, Audi, of course they didn't. Uh, And they knew that if they were going to fight with the... um fight with the turbo diesels they they had they couldn't just come with a conventional car they had to push the boat out and they and they tried to do something you know quite trick the car had a a, a tiny straight six turbocharged engine uh, and that narrow engine allowed for some uh, some trick aero there so that was sort of you know so they were they were trying to be clever and Probably they were being clever, but they just didn't have enough time and money to see it through. I've always said that project was a day late and a dollar short, and I think it absolutely was. No, I was just going to say, I just remember seeing it trackside, just to back up what you're saying. Actually, I remember watching it. Um, I mean, it didn't come past very often, as you know, but when it did come past, I remember at Turt Rouge, actually really quite mm. impressive in terms of its cornering ability. Like they, they were onto something, but I think I remember looking at the splits and it lost something like 11 seconds to the turbo diesels down the Mulsanne. And obviously you can't, you can't be giving that sort of lap time way down down the you know Fernando Alonso used to moan about GP2 engine in Formula 1 but I mean that that really is a different different category isn't it so yeah the car was late it didn't do the races that it was originally meant to race at Sebring it it came late it barely raced when it got to Le Mans they had a bit of a a, a nightmare at Le Mans and they they you know ProDrive being that sort of typically British racing organization that can react fast they they saw a problem uh, in the pulley system on the on the on the engine uh, and they decided to re-engineer one of the pulleys be- which was originally aluminium and because it was cracking and they thought well it's not going to last the race they re-engineered it in steel and now these new pulleys uh, arrived after the warm-up on Saturday morning. So they were fitted to the car. And, it, and you know, it, it sounded like a good idea, but unfortunately what it sort of just pushed the problem further along the, the sort of chain in, in the pulley system. So basically the pulley system failed somewhere else in the end. So one car did two laps, one car ended up doing six laps. They did actually change the pulley on one of the cars and sent it out, but the engine had actually been developed. So between them, the two cars did, you know, just a handful of laps. And that was the last we saw of the car, unfortunately, Uh, partly because the way it was funded was through the sale of customer cars. Well, the customers who'd put their money down for this car were not very impressed by what they'd seen you know and so the project was probably doomed from 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 that point but yeah again it it was a worthy project and you know it could it have worked well it could have it could have been a decent contender i think could it have beaten the turbo diesels who knows but uh, yeah it was a 
a proper program that was just you know lacking time and money I mean that that sums it up really. I think that's probably what we can say about all these pro- the project cars. You know, there wasn't enough time and money. There weren't enough of them. The you know the the V eight engine was too late and you know didn't have the development done on it. And then of course you know the Group C stuff that we've talked about. And then finally the AM- I never had Aston Martins very rarely had enough time and resources to do the job with the potential of the various designs that it's had. And that hopefully is what's different this time because you know Lawrence Stroll is a pretty serious individual. He's putting a lot of resources into Aston Martin at different levels and you do get the feeling I mean Gary's been to the launch I'm sure he can elaborate on this a bit further but this time it feels like a a serious effort that hopefully won't be a day late and a dollar for me this is the most serious bid by Aston to win Le Mans since 1959 I mean I would you know I would say that unequivocally uh, absolutely Uh, and and what we shouldn't forget is that you know back in um Back at in sort of 09, 10 and 11, when Aston Martin were trying to take on the turbo diesels, you know, Audi and Peugeot would have been spending, you know, upwards of 100 million somethings, probably euros, uh, but a hell of a lot of money. Now, manufacturers don't need to spend that because of the way the rules are written with these uh, performance windows that you have to be in. So they're relatively easy to attain. So you don't have to spend all that time uh, in the wind tunnel and all that time on the CFD. There are uh, t- strict testing rules on how much testing you can do. And then on top of that, of course, and I'm going to say those three, to, three words, balance of performance that should bring everything together. So the reality is that you don't need to spend those big bucks that you did um 15 years ago or or you know or let's think back to the hybrid LMP1 era of Porsche Toyota and Audi and how much they were spending yeah the, the, this is this is one of the key ingredients or building building blocks if you like of going to say those words again golden age um yeah so that's very important and it's you know and it and it perhaps it's why a minnow and, and Aston is a minnow in comparison to Toyota, isn't it? Or or General Motors or even Porsche. Porsche announced yesterday how many cars it built. Uh, I presume it was last year, um, and it was it was it was a, a, a load. You know, was it two hundred and seventy two thousand cars or something? Uh, you know, Aston Martin built six thousand cars. Um, so this project um, is serious. Uh, and I guess we should talk a little bit about it because, uh, you know, we have been talking about it on and off for four years. Now, if you go back to Le Mans 2019, Aston committed to racing the Valkyrie from uh, the following year. Well, it would actually be at the back end of 20 because then we were in the sort of winter series uh, format so it was coming to race against Toyota Toyota was the other manufacturer manufacturer that committed that weekend at Le Mans in 19 uh, and it was coming with a car based on the Valkyrie hypercar the the, the car inspired conceived by Adrian Newey the, the Formula One design legend now fast forward uh, to now yes it's coming with the Valkyrie but the Valkyrie now is being built to a different rule subset, if you like. You can, in the rules, take a road car and turn it into a race car. 
Now, that's what Aston were going to do originally. Now, they're actually designing the Valkyrie to the uh, prototype rules. Now, it's still got the Valkyrie DNA of the road car, but it's sort of, it's being designed so it doesn't have to have the compromises that you have when you're taking something else. Okay, you know, it's the ultimate road car, isn't it? The the Valkyrie. But still, the rules say you can only change this by this much and that by that much. Whereas, obviously, if, if you design a prototype you know, you have have more freedoms. So basically, you know, motor racing is about compromises and overcoming them. And and that's why they've uh, gone this route. And part of the reason for this, they've gone this route is because back in 2019, when they first announced this program, uh, Multimatic, the Canadian uh, headquartered group who are also have an involvement in the Porsche started work on the project it was axed uh, at the start of February 2020 actually put on hold is the uh, the official uh, word wording used at the time but but the design of that effectively became a car that people might have seen at Goodwood uh, I think it demonstrated at the British Grand Prix a car called the Valkyrie AMR Pro which is billed as the ultimate track day tool uh, and uh, yeah so now it's that car that is forming the base of the car that we'll be see, seeing racing at Le Mans in 2025 it's slightly complicated and perhaps convoluted but that's the sort of that's the sort of timeline of of how it worked kev we've got some wonderful context of of aston over the years and now this project again you know four years ago we're coming back two years ago no we're not it's on pause now they're coming back again how much pressure is on aston martin to get it right this time after you know that failure of the amr1 that's only 10 12 years ago that's recent history well, I should imagine that Lawrence Stroll is going to be the person exerting a lot of the pressure on his on his team. You know, he's someone that expects success. Uh, you can see the strides they've made with the F1 team already. Yeah, he's putting a lot, as I said before, he's putting a lot of resources into their you know, their campus, extra facilities. I believe that part of this project will that that part of that will be for this project. It's not the campus isn't just going to be for for the F1 side because ProDrive are carrying on doing the GT program because we're going to have all new GT3 and GT4 cars. So yeah, there's going to be there's going to be pressure it's going to be um a bit you know a big a big name coming back but as i say i think the pressure will be yeah it's like all these things they're self-motivated people aren't they they're going the pressure's going to be from internal as much as it is is external i mean i think probably we should mention also how important heart of racing is in this project as well uh, which gary i'm sure can talk about but my one concern about it so far correct me if i'm wrong gary is that they're committing just one car at the moment aren't they one car in work and one that, that we that i mean that's got project aston's written all over it again let's go and take on you know how many cars how many cars are porsche gonna have at le mans by tw- by 2025 you know they took three works cars there this year so yeah you do wonder hopefully those numbers will go up by the time we actually get to the race because uh, you need a few numbers at Le Mans the commitment is to one car in each series uh, there is a desire for that to grow now whether it can grow in year one you know obviously there will be uh, commercial considerations there and and the other consideration is is 
uh, room on the grid. I know Le Mans has expanded to 62 cars in recent years, but there's going to be amazing competition for entry, for entries uh, moving forward. And now, you know, if you think about it, they will have one if they have a solo car entered in WEC, they will have that that spot guaranteed. Now, if they want to uh, enter another car, then they have to go through the selection process. Now, as the hypercar grid grows, uh, and, and we know that the new LMGT3 class is important to the ACO and the FIA, and then, of course, there's LMP2, which the ACO are always uh, telling us is an, is an essential part of their pyramid of endurance even though next from next year it's not part of the full schedule of the WEC so you know 62 cars sounds a lot doesn't it but when you when you add up the numbers um you know I don't don't know how much room there is going to be for for everyone but Kev's point is absolutely right I think if you want to win Le Mans you need you need multiple cars, don't you? And, you know, think back to Tom Walkinshaw was always insistent that you had to have at least three cars, wasn't he? Uh, and and he was pro- proved right. I, I remember there being a letter in Autosport criticising Jaguar in 88 uh, for taking five cars, uh, which I believe the editor at the time pointed out, how many Porsches do you think may have yeah. been on the grid that the Jaguars <laughs> were facing that year? Only three works cars, but look at all these other ones. But yes, I mean, you need numbers. So the project is now public, and that comes with a whole another layer of expectation, of pressure that's with it. Is this about the right cycle to go so public with a 2025 project? Does it match the kind of you know announcements that Ferrari made, for instance, coming back and then winning um, Le Mans? Because that was one of the criticisms of the AMR1 project, is it was all done in public, and that there should have been a longer gestation period behind closed doors. I think that was Darren Turner's criticism of it, which was, a, you know, we come into the, 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 the current day Aston and you start with things like shareholders and expectations and talking up projects. Is the timing right to go so big with this now? Well, lead times have, have just grown massively in modern motor racing, which I don't necessarily understand why, although... One of the reasons is the whole homologation process that um, manufacturers' uh, entrants have to go through, and it's a drawn-out process. For example, in in the WEC, the car has to go into the Sauber wind tunnel to be measured. Uh, It's scanned, so its body shape is scanned. And I've actually seen the sort of the scheduling of how the homologation goes through, and it's 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 more than a year, you know. It's 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 a very long, long and drawn out process, which, you know, Porsche decided to build the um, the 956 in the summer of uh, 1981 and were racing, you know, were running in March and won Le Mans in June uh, the following year. So I, those days are long gone. Um, so I think the timeline is about cor- is about correct. You know, you think Ferrari announced their program in February 21. Uh, began racing in 23, you know, uh, Peugeot announced their program in, uh, at the end of 2019, started racing in 22. So yeah, I think, you know, it's in line with what other manufacturers have done. Before we go, final question, I'll ask both of you. I'll start with Kev, minimum expectations for Aston's return. 
or in the first year or yeah. by the end of the project. First I, year, yeah. given how strong the grid will be by then, like if they can get the car home in the top 10, I think that, that would be a pretty that would be a pretty solid result depending on what else is going on. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's is that too low an expectation, Gary? What do you think? No, not at all. No, I think I think for anyone to turn up and be competitive and see the finish, that's for year one. That's fine. You know, even if you're not in the top ten, and you know, in the future, in the very near future, we are going to see the top ten uh, fully filled out by cars racing in the hypercar class, aren't we? So I I, should, I, I think a finish. Uh, a competitive finish without too many delays and within, you know, within a decent margin of the pace, I think for any manufacturer coming in year one uh, would be, would, would be, would, would tick the boxes for them. And of course, to remember, they're going to be coming up against cars that have been around longer. Yeah, this is the problem that everyone's had against Toyota this year. Toyota knows their car. They've had it out there. They've been doing this for longer. And, you know, by the time Aston arrives, Lamborghini and BMW will also have been doing it for a lot. You know, pretty much everyone will have more knowledge of their cars and the way that the races work and all the rest of it. Uh, than them, so yeah, I think it should should be should the expectations should be kept sensibly in check for the first year. But I must admit, as a and as as an Aston Martin fan, I grew up at AMOC meetings. You know that 1959 Le Mans win. It's an awful long time in the past. It would be yeah, it'd be glorious to uh, to see to see Aston win again, just like it was fantastic to see Ferrari win again this year. Well, you know they're the, they're the latecomer to the party, aren't they? Which is kind of ironic because they were one of the first people that signed up. But obviously, because of the way this project has evolved, and you know, this sort of three-year hiatus, they're ending up uh, sort of, yeah, coming in after everyone else. So that there's a sort of an irony to that, isn't there? In a week when I saw McLaren say that they don't think they can do a proper electric road car by 2030 because of weight and things like that, uh, I think one of the things we can say about this project is it's going to sound good and proper and V12V and uh, wherever it finishes, you'll know when it goes <laughs> past you. So it's going to be a good reason to get yourself to go see this car racing in person. Chaps, thank you so much for joining us and for putting that into a wonderful historical context of, of where <coughs> we've been and where this, this project has got to. And I'm sure we'll be talking about it a lot more in the future. Wonderful podcast. Thank you so much. If you've enjoyed it, I'd love to know what you thought. Any questions you've got for maybe the next time we talk about this subject, you can email podcast at autosport.com. Always love to hear from you and, uh, and your feedback. And thank you so much for listening to this one. And we'll catch you on the next one. Sports Social Podcast Network.